1: The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. With those words from Gramsci, I welcome you to the Time of Monsters podcast. The war in Gaza continues to dominate headlines, and it has sort of global uh, repercussions, you know, not only in the Middle East, but we're seeing protests all over the world, and it's dividing political factions and political parties all over the world not least of which is the democrats joe biden is pursuing a bear hug strategy with benjamin netanyahu of giving like total public support with a few rhetorical cautions and their claims that they're he's challenging the israeli government more in private but certainly the the, the public face that biden wants to present is of like very strong support for Israel. And this is a contentious issue within the Democratic coalition. There are many Democrats who are who share Biden's position, but there's an increasing number, especially among the young and among people of color, who don't. And we're seeing that in the sort of protests that are going on. And also, I mean, very interestingly, the sort of internal dissents within the government itself. We've seen unprecedented scenes of White House staffers and congressional staffers joining in protest or um, holding vigils uh, for what's uh, happening in Gaza, um, we've seen a dissent channel within the State Department um, circulating uh, critiques of Biden's policies, um, and uh, even within an organization like the DNC, you know, which is, you know, as establishment and institution as one could want, and anyone who joins it is kind of looking to climb the ladder of worldly success in American politics, there's been a significant number of staffers who have signed a petition in dissent. And this internal critique is joined by external critique of massive public protest. Now, uh, it looks like this is all going to play out, this disagreement Within the Democratic coalition, he's going to play out ele- le- electorally, and this brings me to my guest, Alexander Salmon, a political writer for Slate, who's written a really great, informative piece about how APAC, the I guess it's described as a pro-Israel lobby group, is one of the largest lobby groups in America. Is is set to invest heavily in the coming election with a particular agenda of targeting those Democrats who are more critical of Israel, notably the Squad, who have been at the forefront. Of pushing for a ceasefire. So Alex, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: And uh, yeah, let, let's get started. So what's the story here? What's the, uh, as they say in the biz, the uh, what's the nut graph?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the rub. I guess, so now we're officially in the 2024 cycle, right? The 2023 yeah. elections are behind us. And so it's sort of like, it's It's all 24 from here on out and and the story, which I think is going to be really one of the primary stories of this election cycle, despite you know all the focus on Trump and Biden and everything else, is that that APAC is is uh, is is basically preparing to spend an absolutely gargantuan sum in democratic primaries to basically to to knock off progressives and critics of Israel. It both is about Israel policy and it isn't about Israel policy, but it's they're going to make. Uh, a totally unprecedented move to to challenge incumbents. Some of them are many term incumbents who've been around for a long time, who are very popular, who are, you know, some of the most prominent Democrats in the country, certainly the young rising stars of this party. And they're going to, as an outside group, spend what I've, what I've heard is at least $100 million in these Democratic primaries with a particular emphasis on those squad members. So there are five in particular that they have already targeted, four of whom they've, recruited opponents for and one more who they're actively enthusiastically recruiting for and there may be more to come
1: okay so i think that gives us sort of the lay of the land very clearly now obviously you know the hamas attack of october 7 and then the israeli campaign in gaza and also one has to say the israeli campaign in the West Bank because there's a tremendous amount of violence there as well that has all like you know made all these issues much more salient but actually this sort of you know Israeli lobby distrust or hostility towards the new generation of progressives it predates all that right like this is actually a story that has sort of like longer roots
2: absolutely yeah so it's yeah, obviously, this story is about the sort of changing landscape of of popular sentiment towards Israel, which is a really big part of it. It also is about the changing nature of APAC, which has just changed as a group dramatically. It's it's it's, you know, has gone in in just a few short years from being like a bipartisan organization, which is how it's, you know, sees itself and presents itself to really being an organ of of the Republican Party. and And that mission creep has been really, really pronounced both in hiring in terms of um, who they brought on from the RNC, from the evangelical world. Like you look at the, their top staffing and you can see it. But exactly, as you mentioned, despite this, you know, sort of paradigm shattering event that happened on October 7th and the fallout thereafter, this is really a response to, to something that happened in 2021, which is that after the the evictions and, and, and violence in Sheikh Jarrah, which is, you know, with, where the Israeli military and a bunch of settlers pushed Palestinians out of this neighborhood, the, a number of progressives in Congress pushed for conditioning military aid to Israel, which is something that just hadn't really mm. been part of the conversation in any meaningful way. And that was a huge, huge shift. And so when that became something that was even a viable policy position for a, a small handful of Democratic electeds, APAC really kicked into, into high gear. And so immediately thereafter, the sort of coming election cycle that followed, they made a massive intervention into Democratic primaries, which they had never done before. This is something that was totally unprecedented for them. They don't play in primaries. They don't play in Republican primaries still. But they made the, put this campaign together to spend via various super PACs. And there's a lot of sort of hide-the-ball action with this where you know they fund pop-up PACs and they'll, they have all these other sort of affiliate PACs. But they ended up spending upwards of 30 million dollars in largely in open seats and where there were retirements or redistricting had drawn, you know, uh, multiple candidates together. And the campaign was basically to get the most right wing candidates into those safe blue seats to knock out any perceived critic of Israel, of the Netanyahu government. And it was overwhelmingly really successful. So they really did manage to overwhelm the Democratic primary process. And that really set the tone for what we're about to see.
1: Okay. Now, one thing maybe that to highlight, though, is that when they went into these primaries with super PACs, were those super PACs talking about Israel, saying that, like, you know, the candidate that we're supporting is very pro-Israel and that the one that we are opposed to is not friendly to Israel? Like, did they actually try to make Israel a salient issue in those primaries?
2: Absolutely not. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the—and this starts in 2021. It actually starts in a special election in Ohio— where Nina Turner, who's the well-known Bernie Sanders delegate, former campaign affiliate as well, was running against this woman Chantel Brown, and they came in huge in that race. Nina Turner was seen to have a, a, a huge advantage in polling. It looked like it was an open and shut sort of race. They came in millions of dollars, huge spend, and no mention of Israel policy. I mean, a very, very scant mention. And we're talking about across. 18 different races eventually that were, in, they got involved in, in some way, shape, or form. Israel policy is not part of the messaging at all. It's, 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 and there's a lot of reasons for that, but, you know, the messaging is really, you know, this more conservative Democrat that we support is, supports Joe Biden, is the real Democrat, is the, you know, it's, you know, we'll get this, get the Democratic agenda passed. You know, it's, it's incredibly sort of dishonest in, in, in the way it presents these, this messaging, but critically, no mention of israel policy because the is, the israel policy that apac supports is not popular amongst democrats it's really not popular amongst americans broadly and we've seen that now with these recent polls mm-hmm. but especially with democrats it does not it's not going to move people to vote for a congressperson it's going to move them to vote against them and so yeah that that has played no role in, in in that messaging and and it's critical because you know it is ultimately also about other republican agenda items and Republican policies. It, it's it's not just about Israel. It's about a number of things that, you know, the conservative faction of this country would like to see enacted.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no. know. So I because I think that, that that's a kind of an interesting point, just that, you know, it's become a sort of politics that dares not speak its name. Like, you can have pro-Israel money that spends in primaries to advance its agenda, but like it won't do it so under its own names, It will its own stated agenda or its own agenda, but like make other claims. The um, uh, other thing, as you said, was a lot of this happened in sort of like open seats. Um, did they invest in like trying to challenge incumbents in 2021 and 2022?
2: Not really. Yeah, it was mostly yeah. open seats. There were a couple of instances where there were two incumbents drawn together uh, by redistricting. So it was kind of an incumbent, you know, but they're, you know, also their candidate was effectively an incumbent. The most, I think, acute example of this was in Michigan where Andy Levin, who's a mm-hmm. progressive, a really strong pro-labor progressive from a, you know, a famous political family in Michigan, who was a president of a synagogue, like someone who's a very prominent Jewish member of Congress, one of the most prominent Jewish Democrats, ran against Haley Stevens, who is not Jewish, but because Andy Levin was strong on labor, because he you know, espoused a, hand, you know, a handful of, of very progressive policy positions, but also because he had cr- criticized Israel in, in, in a very marginal way, in, in the in sort of J Street-affiliated way of being for a two-state solution. And he's still a self-identified Zionist, even. They came after him. They spent $4 million in that race to ensure that he got knocked out. And in favor of you know someone who was more loyal to 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 APAC and and they got what they wanted uh, they they knocked him out and largely yeah we're talking about open seats we're talking about drawing together districts it, it, it taking out an incumbent is a very different uh, operation and I think that that's yeah that that that's a change that we're seeing from cycle to cycle here that's really notable
1: yeah so. The the issue of incumbency, I think, is important because normally like political parties, you know, like aside from whatever ideological claims that they might make, they are really job programs. And a big part of the job program is, you know, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. You you want to, incumbents like to defend other incumbents. Like that's the kind of like the bargain that holds a political party together, you know, like I'll support Nancy Pelosi and then She'll like help me keep my seat in primaries. And that's certainly the way the Democrats have behaved in the past. Like, 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 so how do you think the Democrats as a party will respond to challenges to incumbency? Because I think, you know, like they in the past have been very hostile to progressives who have like challenged incumbents. So, So, so does this set up contradictions within the way that, you know, the Democratic Party as an organizational? entity sees its mission or sees how it operates
2: yeah it, it's 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 a it's a contradiction that's actually so extreme that it the the sort of weird inaction so far on this is it's impossible to sustain like it's going to go one way or the other but right this is a party that adores incumbency and and it, this is actually embodied best probably by hakeem jeffries who's obviously the new uh top-ranking democrat in the house the minority leader and. Jeffries is is a champion of incumbency to a fault, right? To to an extreme. Mm-hmm. Will defend incumbents, you know, who, who are opposed to democratic priorities on all sorts of policies. It started a super PAC or, or at least a political action committee um, not long ago just for the purpose of defending incumbents against progressive primary challenges. Like this is someone who's incredibly dedicated to uh, protecting incumbents. It, and that's you know that's been the the mark of leadership in, in in the house for a long long time. Pelosi and Hoyer and Clyburn are all like this. At the same time, Akeem Jeffries is an APAC guy. I mean, he's a real APAC guy. And if you go to the APAC website, he is all over it. It's like you know they got video montages. There are photos of him. It, the, you know the the his top donor group from the 2022 cycle was the Israel lobby. There's no question about his allegiance to this group, and so it puts him in a very interesting situ- position. It's a very interesting situation because it's like, here's someone who isn't a vowed defender of, of incumbency, you know, no matter what, it doesn't matter if the this person is an opponent of all the policies that Jeffries wants to see pass into law, he will put money, leadership has always been like this, money, endorsement, advocacy, campaigning for incumbents, basically no question is asked. Um, at the same time, APAC has set a lot of checks his way. and so. He, right now, he has been unwilling to say this is not acceptable. We're not going to let this group raise money from Republicans and then spend it in Democratic primaries and and jeopardize not just the incumbents but even the majority. I mean, this is something that has the has the risk of really blowing up and costing them them seats. And so, it's not just about moving the sort of political pulse to the right. It's also, you know, it sort of it puts those that, that math into into question. And and so far, Jeffries has not been willing to say this is unacceptable. We can't let an outside group run roughshod over the Democratic primary process. But at some point, they're going to have to do one thing or the other. You know, either the DCCC and the House a majority pack is going to have to spend exorbitantly limited resources on protecting these incumbents, or it's going to just engage in you know, incredible self-defeating hypocrisy and, and let this happen. So one or the other, but really a, 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 a turning point moment.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, ex- exactly. And to maybe highlight that contradiction that you've spoken about, there's a congressman in Texas, I believe. Is it Henry Quiller? Yeah,
2: Quayar, uh, Yeah. Oh,
1: yeah, good, c- good. C- Henry Cuellar, Yeah. He now, now this is he had a primary challenge, and he's someone that one would think. Democrats would be dubious about. I mean, he's anti-abortion. At a point where you know the party has very good reason to try to like you know emphasize its pro-choice stance as strongly as possible because that is very ele- electorally successful for them. But you know, and he was challenged by a sort of progressive challenger who was pro-choice. But Nancy Pelosi. And the all the other Democratic leaders, they 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 really rally to him, like they they you know this is the send in the calvary, uh, cavalry moment because he would have lost if the party elite had not like really rallied behind him, and he just very narrowly squeaked out a primary victory. Now you would think that well this guy had benefited from incumbency. Like does he support the the idea of incumbency uh, protection above all else? <laughs>
2: Certainly not. Yeah. So we thanks to thanks to a, a keen eared American University student who was at a who Henry Henry Clare spoke to at a in a, in a lecture got just a couple of days ago. Now I guess. he yeah he said that he had spoken to Hakeem Jeffries after you know the story that I did at Slate ran saying that APAC you know was going to spend 100 million dollars on Democratic primaries in this cycle with a focus on knocking out uh, incumbent squad members incumbent progressives. And he said that he had spoken with Jeffries and encouraged him not to intervene, not to not to spend on behalf of those incumbents, not to protect them, and to let APAC basically do its thing and knock them out, which is incredibly wild because the, the double standard here is 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 you know it's 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 galling because right, as you say, like two separate times now, Quare has been on the ropes, needed support. Massive financial support, which he got from APAC and its sort of affiliate super PAC groups, but also from leadership who gave him these endorsements. They even went down to South Texas and campaigned for him. They did this stuff despite the fact not only that he's anti-abortion, right, as you mentioned, not only that he has an A rating from the NRA, so he's an opponent on gun control. Like These are core Democratic concerns, but he also, his house was raided by the FBI. I mean, like, <laughs> you know, the, the, the number of, of issues Were were you know it's a litany of 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 issues and 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 House leadership came through for him in a massive way and absolutely turned that election. I mean, when when he ran in '22, it was like a couple hundred votes was the difference. You know, you don't even have to be measured about that. That certainly pushed him over the edge. And 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 now he's saying no, right? That that incumbency protection racket should not extend to his more progressive colleagues, despite the fact that it's the only reason he's still in Washington.
1: Yeah, no, and I mean, in his case, I mean, the argument that the Democratic Party leadership made was, well, we, you know, like, we preserve all our members, you know, it's not that we like what he stands for. But, uh, you know, this is how we function as a party. This is how we can get, you know, unity as a party. And uh, this, so yeah, I mean, like, the, the, the sort of contradictions of that position, like, were they defending him because they love incumbents? Or were they defending him because they actually kind of like to have you know, like center-right Democrats as part of the coalition on a variety of issues. You know, like the contradictions of all that are becoming very apparent. And now in terms of, you know, I think a lot of listeners will be very concerned about all this in terms of like, how can there be like a response? Do we have, now I know Bernie Sanders has already been sort of sounding the alarm, you know, going back for more than a year about APAC. Investment and you know I, it seems like that seems to me like a kind of a good thing like to make this visible like if this is actually out in the open it becomes much more problematic and much more difficult to do like if APAC in investment in uh, democratic elections especially trying to make the democratic party more right wing I would imagine that you can actually mobilize a lot of people and also more importantly a lot of funding. To help the squad and other progressives, you can mobilize that by you know actually bringing this issue to light and to like making it a polarizing issue.
2: Yeah, so this is obviously something that has has is kind of changing in real time. What it means to take this money, sort of how this funding, how this campaign funding even works and stuff, it's becoming more visible, which I think is a critical sort of part of understanding how this whole thing works. And then, of course, you know, understanding how to combat it if you're a progressive the the and you know like the the notion this is like funded by republicans is not even like it's not an oblique sort of like you know we know that they raise money from republicans and they endorse republicans it's like they're cashing million dollar checks from trump mega donors and billionaires like bernie marcus paul singer like some of the most well-known republican mega donors and and then they're spending you know, like you can see the ad buys and everything else, the money is going straight into this. It's, it's not even like, you know, they raise money in this, in this, you know, this variegated distant way and then they're making these ad buys. It's like they're taking money from those, those particular people. And then they're putting that money directly into these ad ad spends. We know, we know exactly what's happening. I think the other reason is not that, or the reason that they're, they feel empowered to do this is not only because they were so successful in the 2022 cycle with their $30 million spend, it's because small dollar fundraising right now is very, very weak. Mm. So obviously, like members of the squad, one of the things that they've, you know, espoused from the beginning is that they will not take corporate PAC money, they will not take super PAC support, they will only raise money from small dollar donors, which has been, you know, which was sort of a a revolution in fundraising in in the Democratic Party for a time, it was, Mm. you know, a very novel commitment. And it worked has worked great to a point, but this year there's been really low enthusiasm. There's a number of reasons for that probably, but the, the, the fundraising numbers for, for Corey Bush, for, you know, for Jamal Bowman, they're, they're not good. They're low, they're low numbers. And so it's, it's an interesting conundrum now where it's like, okay, we know, we know, like, we know that money it wins and we know that, you know, spending more does correlate strongly to to these outcomes and and if you're a small dollar, you know, reliant person, it's it's all of a sudden you're looking at you know these trends in fundraising, and it's like it's it's not as easy as it was to raise money yeah. from small dollar, and and that's a huge concern now as well to to the longevity of that project is also kind of up for grabs.
1: Yeah, yeah. Although I mean, I, in some ways, I mean, the fact that it's apex intervention could actually be a benefit because you know you can actually rally people around it. Like I think that you know a lot of people are very like upset at the American policy towards Israel, and particularly amongst our Democratic Party voters, like, I think that like a rallying cry of, oh, well, we have to defend the squad, because you actually need people saying, you know, ceasefire, and saying, you know, we have to, like, limit military aid to Israel, like, I actually can imagine that you can kind of get, you know, substantial small um, funding for 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 that rallying cry.
2: Yeah, yeah. And we'll see as we get closer to election day, you know, how that how that scans, if that's scrutable. I mean, I think that this is one thing actually where there the the analog is is to the NRA, that mm-hmm. this is like this is something that like the, the impact of taking APAC money, what it means to be supported by APAC, what it means to take uh their funding, I think is really radically changing in real time. And so mm-hmm. um you know, for a long time democrats have have been proud to say that they take you know they've courted apex support not just because there's so so much money to be had by having that endorsement but because they thought it was you know something to, to pride oneself on as a candidate um a bipartisan organization you know the whole run of it and that used to be how the nra operated like that was the nra was a bipartisan organization it you know endorsed democrats democrats desperately wanted its endorsement and backing we're proud to have it and in a handful of cycles, it went from being that to something where no Democrat would ever, ever openly affiliate with this organization, because we know, obviously, that it's a far right organization now. It's, mm-hmm. it, not only does it work on you know this incredibly unpopular gun policy, the total deregulation of, of gun violence in, in the U.S., but also on a handful of other Republican priorities that have nothing to do with gun policy. And, and, and that shift happened pretty quickly. And I think that we might be seeing that with APAC as well, where... What it means to take money from them, what it means to be one of their candidates, I think is different today than it was even a handful of weeks ago. And I think that's something that progressives will hope they can hammer on, hope that that's scrutable messaging-wise, and maybe right is something that ends up sort of alienating that group from the party in a more meaningful way, which, which you know would, would be a really profound change.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, one can imagine ways in which that this could be accelerated or happen. And as I mentioned, I mean, just the very fact that Israel is so much in the news, actually, I think works against AIPAC, because then, you know, they can't be just, they're funding somebody, but Israel isn't salient to voters. And you can't point out what's questionable about this group giving funding. But also, like all the other activities that AIPAC does, in terms of, you know, they've given a lot of money, not just to Republicans. But to Republicans who are election deniers and that's a really big issue for like Democratic Party voters like like and they've given you know and they're very very closely aligned with tr- the Trumpist agenda in many ways so like I think that if you know like APAC is more becomes more controversial because we're polarizing becomes something that's actually discussed and discussed in ways that are you know partially about uh, you know what's happening in the Middle East and how it's something that many Americans are opposed to but also discussed in its you know, involvement in American politics is involvement with you know some of the most distressed, distressing trends in terms of authoritarianism um, and the GIP, GOP's rejection of democracy. Then you know, like to me, it's very easy to imagine the scenario you outline, which is that A P A C becomes like the N R A. Right.
2: Right, exactly. So, right. So APAC endorsed 109 Republicans who voted to overturn the election results, the 2020 election results. Like this is not they're not just dealing with, you know, garden variety Republicans. Right. They're they're absolutely in lockstep with the Trumpist vision of of curtailing or you know, overthrowing American democracy. I mean, it, it really is that extreme. And, and there's this obvious affinity between Netanyahu and Trump. And you know the sort of political program there, and 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 the alliances and the affinities are are, are very clear, and and yeah, I think right making that so- whole thing articulating that whole thing is a challenge, but I think it actually could be a, a meaningful one on on messaging and and right, I mean ultimately you don't spend a hundred million dollars on primaries out of a position of strength, right? It's it's if they really thought they had this popular mandate, they wouldn't need to spend it, it, it you know. So in a sense, right? It's 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 sort of a shock and awe thing where spending that much money on primary races is crazy. Like it is so much money. And especially, you know, there's not even that many, like there aren't that many open seats. Like they're not going to get involved in Senate races. Maybe Michigan, they might, because you know, that's an open seat, but like they can't really blow out a Senate race. Cause those are too expensive. But, but you know, like for a handful of house races, this is a colossal amount of money at the same time. You don't spend that money. If you have popular rule behind you, cause you don't have to spend it. And, and so it's both a sort of show of, of force that sort of is undergirded by this weakness in in, in the popularity of, of the policy and and the program that they've invested in, and it's tough to knock off incumbents. You know, it's like these are popular incumbents; they're they're well known. Like this is ends up can end up being a battle that you you end up burning money, and and I think that that's a that's the thing too. Is that obviously there's you know I think this is a, a moment where APAC feels very powerful because you know, they're, you know, they're calling the shots on messaging and all sorts of stuff. And in both parties in a lot of ways, but like, it's also, there's also a tinge of hubris here because it's like, you know, you, are you sure you want to go up against Rashid is a very popular representative. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to really, you know, you're going to spend money to recruit someone and then you're going to pay to, to, to get, see this thing through, it's going to cost a lot. And, and it might not work. And if it doesn't work, all of a sudden, this sort of big bad powerhouse that is that is APAC and DC looks a lot less formidable, and that is it. You know, that's a big change that could be that could be really, really lasting and consequential.
1: Yeah, no, no. I mean, I think you make a good case that this is going to be one of the big battles in the coming election, and I think it's something we should all pay attention to. And I, I think it's something the listeners, in particular, it, I mean, our conversation. I think might inform how they want to get involved with politics and what are some of the fights that are they might see as essential so though i will keep an eye on this and i just want to thank you for being on the program i it's, i think it's been a very illuminating discussion
2: yeah totally thanks for having me it's always a blast